Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 34. Let's pray together. Father, you are great. You are awesome. We stand amazed at your grace, your mercy, in the face of our sinfulness and frailty and weakness. Thank you for your constancy, that we can trust you to never abandon us. You've told us that you're for us, and if you're for us, who can be against us? You did not spare your own son, but you delivered him up freely for us all. We rejoice in this. Help us this morning that we would commit ourselves to you, that we would continue to worship you as we meditate upon the truth of your word. Do your work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most people like heroes. That's why when there are superhero movies in the uh, theaters, there's a lot of revenue that is associated with it. Some people like, uh, you know, Iron Man more than Captain America. Other people like uh, Superman rather than Batman. I don't know what it reveals about me, but I really like the Hulk. I like that he smashes things. It, it makes me happy. One of, my, one of my favorite scenes in the first Avengers movie is how... Captain America is giving each person their assignments right before the big battle. And he looks over at Hulk and he says, Hulk. And the Hulk looks back and he says, smash. At no other point, really, do you see um, any kind of responsiveness from the Hulk that is human. But he, he has this big, giant smile on his face after he's told to smash. So the, I like Hulk. I don't know who you like. We all know that these are fake heroes. They're fake heroes. There are real-life heroes, day in and day out, people that are... Uh, putting their lives in danger, policemen, firemen, members of various military branches. They've placed their lives on the line for our freedom. You know, they're real-life heroes. They, they, they deal with the real minutia of life. Now, we know that some people's reputation has been sullied by some, by few. I think that we can overlook certain activities and not castigate the entire departments because of the acts of a few. Um, certainly, we don't laud the malpractice in any of these fields, right? Uh, we don't think it's appropriate. At the same time, they're, they're giving their lives. We reserve the highest praise. We reserve the highest praise for those who make the greatest impact. As we read through our Bibles, we come across men and women who have impacted our world. As we read Hebrews 11, we recognize that God commentates on the lives of some of these men and women who are referenced through the, the hall of faith. And, and he makes statements about, by faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, those who are the sons of Abraham. By faith, he says over and over again. We also know right in the heart of that, in verse 6, he says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those that come to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We, we recognize that it's through faith that people have impacted the world. And as you come to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, he, he starts to list a whole bunch of people. And it's, it's like in rapid fire succession. You know, those that have, that have been sawn asunder, those who have faced uh, fire, those who have been ripped from the mouths of lions, all of those statements. And then, then he makes this statement. This is a commentary by God. He says, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. There are, there are real-life heroes. There really are. However, as we understand the Bible in its larger context, 
we realize that our celebration should never focus upon those who are merely human. Our celebration should never focus on those who are merely human. Humans, even those celebrated in Hebrews 11, if you read their life story in the Bible, you'll find the holes and the flaws in their lives. Not, none of them, none of them, just like none of us, are flawless. In fact, we are majorly flawed. Our celebration always comes back, not to us, not to them, but to one, God himself, and very specifically God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our greatest praise should be reserved for the one who has redeemed our lives from destruction. Psalm 34, beginning in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles the angel of the lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them oh taste and see that the lord is good blessed is the man who takes refuge in him oh fear the lord you his saints for those who fear him have no lack now You'll see in the superscription at the very beginning of Psalm 34 that we did not read that it provides us with a context in which this psalm was written. He sa it says, of David, when he cha uh, changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So, now just for the sake of a little context, the word Abimelech is kind of like the, the word Pharaoh. You know what Pharaoh is? That was not a specific king of Egypt. That's the, that's the title, Pharaoh. Well, Abimelech was the, the generic term for a king of the Philistines, Abimelech. And so as you look back into the context, it really is written for us in 1 Samuel 21 and the surrounding passages. What you'll notice is David is running from someone. We know all about David and his running. He's running from Saul. And David and Jonathan made a pact that Jonathan would find out whether Saul intended to kill David or not. And so Jonathan is in the presence of his father and he's listening and he finds out, yes, my father intends to kill, kill him. Uh, so the reason he knew that was because he, his father threw his spear at him. Uh, he, he was pretty angry. Uh, you, you can read about that in Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 21. So David indicates through a messenger and some arrows that David needed to run. So David runs. He takes off away from Saul. In the process, not to be confused with Abimelech, David comes across the priest Ahimelech. <laughs> you love it how these biblical names mirror one another so well. Well, he comes across this priest Ahimelech in the, the place of God. And, and he enters in and he asks for food and weapons. And Ahimelech says, well, I don't have anything but the bread of presence. And so there's a lot of questioning that goes on about the purity of the men. Uh, eventually, Ahimelech gives them the food. They eat, and they're sustained. Uh, he also gives them the sword of Goliath, which David was pretty happy about. After he leaves Ahimelech, he heads off to Gath, and he comes across 
Achish, um, Achish, the, the king of Gath, who is Abimelech, referenced here in Psalm 34. So as he comes to the king of Gath, Achish, the people remind the king of Achish about Saul and about David. They reminded him about the song. Now you remember the song about Saul and David? Saul has killed his thousands and David his Ten thousands. Here's David in this situation, and here's the people telling the king this, and he thinks, this isn't going to go my way. Because I don't have, I only have, I've got Goliath's sword, and here I am around all of his, his host of army. So David has this great idea. I'm going to act like a madman. And he starts to claw at the, do- the door, and he starts to drool, and then the spittle gets on his beard. Now, not a tactic that I would probably take. Maybe not a tactic that you would take. He goes nuts, essentially, but his tactic worked. His tactic in the presence of Achish, or Abimelech, referenced here in Psalm 34, when he changed his behavior, it worked, and God delivered him through that. It was apparently an effective strategy. This morning, as we spend a few minutes considering this psalm, which has that in its background as the context, here's David in trouble, here's David running from Saul, here's David alone, here's David needing to to go to the the house of God to get the bread of presence. He's got no weapon, so he takes the sword of Goliath. He's got really no resources, maybe some misfits that are with him, and and he's, he's really up against it. This is his scenario. And in the face of that scenario, he pens these words. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what treachery you've been in the midst of. I don't know what frailties you feel in your own lives. I don't know what odds you think are stacked up against you. I know what's going on in my life, and I I know how I feel sometimes. But you know what? In the midst of great challenge and difficulty, David penned the words of Psalm 34, and I think it can serve as a great encouragement to us as we face the realities of our lives and the difficulties of our lives, the challenges that we face. The first reality that we want to notice from this psalm is that we need deliverance. We need deliverance. We need deliverance, we know, from our sin unto salvation. That is our first and most desperate need. It's our most obvious need. It's our most important need. Our needs continue on after our salvation. We're in desperate need every day of God's deliverance. And I think that's one of the things that we can notice here because David, we know, is a redeemed man. God has saved him through faith. God has given him what he needs. God has called him the the, the man after my own heart. He used him mightily. He anointed him as the, the second and probably most prominent king of Israel until the Lord Jesus himself. We know all these great things about David. But David, as this redeemed one, is in desperate straits. Listen to to the wording here. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my, what? Fears. Look down at verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his, what does it say? Troubles. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and, what? Delivers them. Look down at verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their, what? Troubles. And down in verse 19. Many are the afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. 
Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those are some pretty strong words, aren't they? We've got troubles, we've got anxieties, we've got difficulties, we have these distresses, afflictions, brokenheartedness, and a spirit that's crushed. This is of a redeemed person. We don't come together, we throw in our Sunday suit and our Sunday smile and say, everything's fine, I don't have any problems. Once I got saved, all my problems went away. That's, that's not true. You want to know why your problems didn't go away after you got saved? Because you're still there. You're your biggest problem, just like I'm my biggest problem. So I can blame my kids when I get upset about something. I, I love you. Hey, listen, you shouldn't have done this, that, and the other thing. And that's why I acted like I did. Oh, yeah, really? So, so the Spirit had no ability to produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life in the face of their difficulties, in the face of their nonsense or whatever's going on. I, I want to blame everyone else. This, this person did this, and so I... No, that's not the way. We, we're all afflicted. We're all our own worst enemy, for sure. He says in verse 4, fears. The, the term there means terror. Terror. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my terror. Uh, one writer says of this, it's horrid experience, experiences in life as well as the dread of the unknown. Take a look, just a couple of Psalms back to Psalm 31. See, this description of distress is not abnormal in our readings of the Psalms. In fact, it, it comes up frequently. Psalm 31, beginning in verse 10. Again, it's a psalm of David. For my life is spent with, what? Sorrow. And my years with sighing. My strength fails. Why? Because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street Flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many. Terror on every side. As they scheme together against me. As they plot to take my life. You can tell there's distress in, in David's life. He again in verse 6, back in Psalm 34, in verse 6 and 17 uses the word troubles. In verse 19, the word afflictions. Our lives are filled. Ready? Our lives are filled with opportunities. Opportunities to trust God. Think about when things are clear sailing for you. Think about when you're not troubled or afflicted or distressed. We get so comfortable and we, we rely upon our own resources and we, we rely upon our own ability, the things we've learned, and, and we get very comfortable with going through life that way. God has a way of helping us to learn to depend upon him. Which is why James says, at the beginning of James, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The word various, multi-variety. Multi Not just like, you know, this, this category and this category. It's like the prism. Our trials have multiple colors, multiple shapes, multiple sizes. Various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete or mature, 
lacking nothing. God is, is maturing us. What is he trying to mature in us? I'm going to be a perfect man. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything right now after I've learned this lesson. No, you know what, what I learn? God, I can't. I just, I just can't. It's kind of like a popular expression these days. I just can't. You know, that's, that's, that's the reality of the Christian life as well as our, our, our secular life. I can't. But the sentence doesn't stop there. If it, if it stopped there, that'd be really depressing. I can't. He can. Because he has. Isn't that good news? That's good news. We need deliverance. And uh, David here in Psalm 34 is, is pointing us to that deliverance that we need. Uh, even this one anointed from God who is the bastion of, of kings, who, who the Son of God himself is named the, the Son of David. Think about this. This one, this special person of God's creation is in distress, letting us know he needs deliverance. Well, he also... Thankfully, in the process of this psalm, gives us a clear path toward deliverance. So we have a clear path toward deliverance. Look at, I'm just going to rattle through these very quickly. Verse 4, I sought the Lord. Verse 6, I cried out. Verse 7, fear him. Verse 9, excuse me, verse 8, blessed is the man who trusts in him. Verse 9, fear the Lord. Verse 10, seek the Lord. Verse 17, the righteous cry out. Verse 22, and none of them who trust in him shall be condemned. What is David's solution? Ultimately, if you were to take all those phrases and boil them down to one phrase, he's telling us to fear the Lord. The solution is to fear the Lord. Now, that is an interesting an interesting phrase, and we want to try to understand that for a few minutes here. Do you have someone that you trust when you're in the midst of a dilemma? You go to them and, and you ask them questions. You, you ask them for some advice. Do you have that person that, that you know when they give you advice, they're going to give you good advice, and it turns out well. Their advice turns out to be right time and time again. Do you have that person in your life? I hope you have someone that, that points you in the right direction when you're in distress. I think as, as we look for comfort and help in the midst of our distresses, and we have that person that can give us some guidance, on a human level, it's a, it's a, it's a little inkling of the kind of trust that God is trying to establish in our lives on a far greater degree with the concept of the fear of the Lord. Far too many people have this thought that the fear of the Lord is like we're afraid of him, as if he's going to turn his back on us, as if he's going to rain down thunder and lightning on us, as though he's going to say, you know, I, I, I thought well of you then when you were doing these things, but now I don't like you any longer because you are doing these things. Somehow that concept of the fear of the Lord has transitioned to be like that's what the fear of the Lord is, where the, the Bible doesn't define it that way. The fear of the Lord is, is the absolute opposite of waiting for God to rain down thunder and punishment on us when we do the wrong thing. That is not the fear of the Lord that the Bible describes. At the heart of the fear of the Lord is a trust for God, realizing that in the face of all of my frailties, God has a plan for my life that will not be thwarted. At the heart of the fear of the Lord 
is to understand that God has a plan for my life that under all circumstances and despite all of my frailties, that plan will not be thwarted. As I was meditating on this, I was, was reminded of, of the little book that we've read to our children. It's called the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And several times as you go through that description of Bible stories, it tells us that God will never, ever stop loving you. God will never, ever stop loving you. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think right where you're seated, if you believe that. Will God ever stop loving you? I'll, I'll further get your thoughts along in that by remembering that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. At my worst, he died for me. Further, I'd like you to think about the people of Israel. Here in the book of Jeremiah, they're, they're taken captive by the Babylonians. They're, they're there because of their rebellion. They're there because they rejected God. God sends them a letter through the prophet Jeremiah. And he says to them, in the midst of their punishment for their rebellion, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Think about that. God's love doesn't stop based upon my actions and my activities. The fear of the Lord helps us to understand that I can entrust my life to God even when everything looks like it's falling to pieces. The fear of the Lord is the Old Testament expression of our New Testament expression, walk in the Spirit. Or walk by faith. And you know why I can say that? And it's going to be hard for you to follow this because we're going to move very quickly through this. I'm going to have them listed on, on the screen behind me. We're not going to turn to these passages. I just want to give you a little sampling of some of the places in the Old Testament where God uses the expression, fear God, fear of the Lord, fear of God, any of those types of expressions, and see what it looks like. Uh, in in um, Exodus chapter 1 and verse 17, the... Hebrew midwives would not kill the children of Israel, the little babies, the boys, because they feared God. To follow that a little further, when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, said, hey, Moses, you're taking too much on yourself. You need some help. Pick out some people among, among, uh, among you that can help you with all of this administration, all this judgment. Make sure that they fear God. That they have that ability to fear God. In, in Leviticus 19, in verse 14, it tells us that we will properly deal with those who are ill, those who have infirmities, those that are, that, are, that are infirmed, when we have the fear of the Lord. It tells us that in Leviticus 19, verse 32, that we'll deal properly with the aged when we fear the Lord. In Leviticus 25, verses 17 and 36, it, God tells us that we will deal properly with our money, if we fear the Lord. A little further, in Leviticus 25, verse 43, we will have proper dealings with our slaves. Now we kind of translate that into our employee-employer relationships. We'll have proper relationships with our slaves if we fear God. It goes on a little further in 2 Samuel chapter 22, in verse 3, we'll have proper dealing with justice. In Nehemiah 5, we'll have proper dealing with money. 
in the fear of the Lord. In Job 1.1, we'll deal properly with evil. Remember Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. The shunning of evil was not why he feared God. The fearing of God is why he shunned evil. God enables the person who fears him to fulfill his purposes. See, one, what we'd like to do uh, when we are not thinking properly, when we're not aligned properly to understanding God's grace and, and how God works, is we read all the commandments in the Bible and we say, okay, if I will do all of these things, I'll have good favor with God. He'll be happy with me. He'll bless me. Things will go well. And the reality is, folks, the place that we need to be is on our knees, like we sang about, bow the knee, that humble reverence of God and say, God, I am unable. I can't do all these things you've asked me to do. The context tells me when I learn to surrender my will to God, he then will do in my life what I could never, ever attain of my own resources. That's what he does. We always start with surrender. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, we'll have a proper dealing with Holiness, when we fear God. In Colossians 3, a very practical portion, uh, when, when we are allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, back in verse 16 of Colossians 3, in verse 22, it works its way out in the husband-wife relationship. Follows, out, uh, follows up with, it'll work its way out in the, the children-parent relationship. It follows that up by, it'll work its way out in the 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 employer-employee relationship. He does the exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. In chapter 5 and verse 18, don't be drunk with wine more into success, but be filled with the Spirit. He says the result of being filled with the Spirit is you'll speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You'll give thanks to God in everything. And you'll submit to one another. Then he goes on and he talks about the husband's-wives relationship. Then he talks about children's relationship with parents, father's relationship with, with his children, and then it talks about the slaves and master's relationship. He does the same thing, and what he's telling us is this. The only way my daily life will be properly ordered is when I have a surrendered will to God. He doesn't say, go and do all these things, and then I'll know that you're surrendered to me. He says, surrender to me, I'll do these things in you and through you. I want you to turn to one passage on this. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, please. Deuteronomy chapter 6, just for a moment. So we recognize in Psalm 34, David is in the midst of turmoil. He's in the midst of difficulty. His life is, is in question. He's on the run. He has no food. He has no weapons. Then he has some food. He has a weapon. He goes to the king of, of uh, Gath, and he has to run from him. After he acts like a madman, he's praying, God, help me. I, I am a mess. I've got troubles on every side. Troubles on every side. That's, that's his dilemma. We need deliverance. And now he's telling us as we look through the psalm, certain key phrases to help us to understand that the, the clear pathway toward deliverance is not solve your problems. The clear pathway toward deliverance is fear God. Beginning in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 6, it's a very familiar passage. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, 
by keeping his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates because you're going to forget. This is this constancy of reminding us of who God is. Love God. Love him. He knows. He's right. He's, he is the, the only God. Going on further. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with, a great and, excuse me, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you, uh, when you eat and are full, then you take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Listen carefully. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. This, this whole context, he's saying, okay, you're about to leave your sojourn. You've been in the wilderness for 40 years. God preserved your clothes. He doesn't say that here, but that's the He preserved your clothes. He fed you. He gave you a drink all this time. He, he, gave, he made it so that your clothes didn't wear out, your sandals didn't, didn't, didn't wear out. You're about to enter into that place of promise that God promised you. When you go in, Here's what's going to be natural. You're going to forget that everything you received was by grace. You and I will start to think that we earned this somehow. That we did what was good. We did what was right. And now we have houses that are filled and, and vineyards that are full and, and olive groves that are full. We have, we have cupboards that are full. We have clothes in abundance. We have all these things because of all the good things we did and God owes us. God says, you're going to forget me. You're going to forget me. Teach your children who I am. Remind your children that when you rebelled against me, I preserved your life. I preserved your beings. I gave you what you needed. I brought to pass the promise, even though you did not deserve the promise to be fulfilled. I did this. Fear me. What does it mean to fear him? God, what I have, who I am, all I've received, it's from you. Since it's from you, it belongs to you. I submit. The surrendered heart, folks, is how God accomplishes his demonstration of his character through you. It is unfathomable you think about God's presence among his people from the beginning, and I don't want to recount the whole thing because I have too much fun doing that, but you've got Adam and Eve in the garden and God's there. You've each of those individual characters in those chapters in Genesis that God is walking with, 
revealing himself to, to Enoch and Noah and Abram. God's present, and then God brings himself and makes himself present before his entire people, first to Moses, then in the tabernacle, in the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. We know all of this. Then we have the, the glorious unveiling of God in the flesh, in Jesus himself. He walks on earth, is rejected by men, is, is inflicted with our sin, attributed with our sin. He bears the wrath of God for our sin because he became sin for us even though we knew no sin. God pours out his wrath upon his son. We see all of this. Jesus is buried. God raises him from the dead. He appears to many people for, for some period of time, remember, and by 500 at once. And then he ascends up into glory. But he did not leave us without his presence. Remember, he sent his spirit. And the church of God is not here just with a message to preach. It's far better than that. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When the church whether it be an individual or corporately, brings forth a message of the gospel that is, while we're in surrender to the Spirit, not only are we bringing forth a powerful message, God himself is bringing forth fruitfulness that only he can produce. The fruit of the Spirit is not something we learn to do sometime in Sunday school. The fruit of the Spirit is entirely a work of God. It's a miracle every time I love someone with God's love. It's a miracle every time I exhibit peace. It's a miracle every time I exhibit long-suffering. It's a miracle. We, we try to humanize these things. Well, this is what love looks like. Look at it in this passage, in this passage, in this passage. It's good. I want to see what love looks like because it's God's Word. But don't say to me, when you're done with that description of love, go and do likewise. Say, this is not what you're doing. This is not what I do. This only comes from the Spirit. So don't settle for second best. And second best is not even close, just so you know. The walk of the Christian is far more important, far more important than we describe because in the surrender of our will to God himself, to the spirit of God who dwells in us, God himself is put on display. Do you realize that that's the purpose that God has placed us here? To put him on display. Not me. If I put me on display, you're going to see lots of stuff you really wish you didn't see. If we put you on display, people are going to see lots of stuff they really wish they didn't see. The purpose is to put God on display. And I can't do that except by surrender of my spirit. So, we have this need for deliverance in Psalm 34. We have the, the clear path toward deliverance, and, and that's how. It's through surrender of our will. Surrender of our will. Head back there to Psalm 34. Now, you'll notice that part of the way that he demonstrates this surrender of the will is in terms of prayer. Right? It's in terms of prayer. It says in, in verse 4, I sought the Lord. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him. So, so we recognize that part of that surrender of the will, that fear of God, is, is in the, the garb, the clothing of prayer. And so I remind you of a passage of Scripture that, that I think is encouraging to your heart. It is to mine. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 16, the Bible says this. 
Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And you know that, that time of need, is, it, it's really in the nick of time. Just when you need it. God, I, I'm, I am desperate. I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm struggling. I'm this, I'm that. Whatever this thing is, here we are. We're troubled. What do we do? God, I need you. And you know what he does? He helps. It's a beautiful thing to know you can call upon the God of the universe who spoke the world into existence, who sustains every day this globe and this universe that we live in. It's immense. It's incredible. This is the God that we speak to. And he gives us grace right at the time of need. So, because we know that we need deliverance, and because we have a clear pathway toward deliverance, I think we can finish this off by saying, we will praise our Redeemer. Because as you read this passage again, verses 1 through 5 particularly, let's read it again. In verse 1, I, bless, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Listen to the praise that comes forth from David. And we know He's not out of the woods yet. He says, I wrote this at the time that I had to change my behavior before King Abimelech. I, I did this when I was in the midst of distress. And the words that come forth from his pen, because it came forth out of his mind, because it came forth from the Spirit's guidance, is I will bless the Lord when everything's good. No, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my mouth. Now let me ask you a question. How capable are you of that? Please tell me you don't think you're capable of that. When, when we, we look at these, these passages where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. How capable are you, are you of that? Not very. I'm capable of loving me. Like, that comes very naturally. I wake up in the morning, I know exactly what hurts. I know exactly what I want. And if I just cater to myself all day long, I will demonstrate very clearly my love for myself. It's so easy. We do it, unfortunately, all too regularly. Because we want to love God doesn't mean we will love Him. So what do we do about this? How, how do I make God's praise continually come from my mouth? How, how do I make it so that I will bless the Lord at all times? How do I make it so that I will love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength and all of my mind? How does that happen? God, I need you. I need you to, to praise through me. I need you to love through me. Help me to love you more. Help me to, to recognize your goodness in the midst of my tragedy and difficulty. 
praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast. I love that passage. That, that phrase there, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. It reminds me so clearly of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 31. It goes through not many mo- no, mighty, not many noble, not many wise. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. It goes on and he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, we don't have anything to boast about about us. You know, you know you. Stop kidding yourself if you are. You know you. You're not everything you want to be. You're not everything you ought to be, just like I'm not everything I ought to be and everything I want to be. My boast is in Him. Paul says at the end of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Back in Psalm 2, the humble hear. Let the humble hear and be glad. When you boast in the Lord, when, when you boast in the Lord, the people that fear God, what do they do? They rejoice in Him. When you boast about you, what do they do? All right. Good going. <laughs> glad you're doing well. But when we boast in the Lord... The humble say, yeah, that's where the praise belongs. Goes on, oh, magnify the Lord with me. To make great. Now, <laughs> the word magnify means to make great. Can I make God any greater than he is? So what does he mean? Well, it's almost like, take out that magnifying glass so people can see how great he is. Or, better yet, take out the telescope and Take that which is so far away and bring it closer up so you can actually see the immensity of who it is. Magnify the Lord. He's already great. We don't make him great. You know what we can do? We can put him on display. When we praise God, we put him on display. Let us exalt his name together. It means to lift up. Now, notice this, and we're going to conclude with this, and we're going to turn to a passage. Verse 5. Those who look to him are, what's it say? It's just like a hidden gem right here in the midst of this text. Those who look to him are radiant. The little inkling into what I've been trying to say about fearing God. When we fear the Lord, he puts himself on display. And if you don't believe it from this text, I want you to see it in another one, okay? Isaiah 60, please. Isaiah 60. Now this is fast-forwarding into the future as, as the consummation comes to its full bloom in Isaiah 60 beginning in verse 1 this great passage of scripture everyone there? Isaiah 60 beginning in verse 1 arise, shine for your light has come who's that light? is it us? is it the church? it's Jesus right? your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nation shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and, what? Be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you the wealth of the nation shall 
come to you. Now, that's a glimpse into the future when, when in all of God's glory, Jesus reigns and his people are with him and they reign and they radiate. You can see another little glimpse of it in Daniel chapter 12. You can see another little glimpse of it in, in Matthew chapter, I forget, I think it's 13 or 15, I can't remember, or 12. It's one of those. Read the whole thing. You'll find it in there. And in, in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the, the one type of, of uh, light and another kind of light. There's the, there's the terrestrial and there's the celestial. And there's the, the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon and the glory of the stars. So shall it be in the kingdom of my son. There's, there's this, this reflection. There's this reflection. All of eternity, all of eternity, perfectly, we, God's redeemed, will perfectly reflect Jesus, our Savior, God's Son. We will see him as he is. We will be like him. This vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. Look at what's in our future. But friend, that future is glorious. That is wonderful. We can hang on to that. God wants to display his character and his nature through us here and now. And we can radiate him not because we have willed ourselves to, but because we have surrendered our will to the one who can radiate himself through us. And that, friends, is when the fruit of the Spirit shines. And that, friends, is when Jesus is magnified. And that, friends, is when the church is fulfilling her purpose. Let us ask God to enable us to do this. Father, we come before you. We recognize your purpose to display yourself through us, among us, and in us. We struggle to surrender our will. We struggle to give you our mind and our devotion. And so here in this moment, we ask you for grace to do in us what we could never do for ourselves, to humble ourselves before you, to allow your spirit to energize our spirit and to reflect your glorious character. We don't want this for our glory. We don't want this for our enjoyment even. We want this because you are worthy of praise. We are your redeemed and we want to reflect your glory. May Jesus Christ be praised. And will you please, through us, bring forth a steadfast love for you and praise that does not end. In Jesus' name, amen.